So I'd like to reflect some on uh, just having returned from four weeks on retreat as a way to touch on some fundamental themes of our practice. And um, I want to do so really in three parts. First part would be just talking some about uh, both the structure of my retreat and the nature of retreat in general, more briefly there. And then secondly, talking about the uh, core practices and their importance, because the practices were, were, that I was doing really were several, and they really offer uh, an overview of the main practices we do. And then lastly, I was uh, particularly inspired and energized to bring uh, the quality of retreat awareness into daily life and to have my own practice in daily life be brought up a few notches. And that's, I'll I'll talk quite a bit about that because that's very relevant for all of us. And so I think it's actually important in being away and in a sense exploring consciousness, exploring practice, to be able to share it uh, and to cross like kind of like coming back to the community, like when the shaman goes off in the mountains, comes back with a song, you know. And um, you know, sometimes I actually do come back with poems. And I'll, I'll have a, a few little short poems here. But uh, I think it's important to have that cycle of uh, going away and returning. I think we do that also often when we go on very meaningful travels. Often, you know, it used to be the dreaded slideshow. That's <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, uh, now it's you know now I think we lose something when we post all our photographs on some website and say okay look at it if you feel like it right? I think we lose something of the actual meeting of, of the of the returning and one uh, one thing I wanted to say right at the beginning that really came from the retreat um, was an appreciation of um, everyone who is practicing. Everyone who has uh, some intention to take our lives as learning. Because really what a retreat is, is actually support for taking close to every moment as learning. The good times, the bad times, the hard times, and that's really the essence of our practice. You know, there are all these different techniques and uh, forms and teachings, but it all really boils down to, can I learn from experience? And can I take everything as learning? Can I take loss as learning? Can I take something difficult as learning? And I found that I didn't have a lot of really difficult times. I had some mildly difficult times. And all of those actually um, opened up my heart and there was uh, more compassion. And so, how to take everything as learning. So I had a lot of appreciation at times for everyone who is really taking that, that journey and taking that approach, because the world uh, needs it so much. Rather than take difficult times as a reason for self-pity or whatever, blaming or judging or revenge or whatever. (coughs) And part of that appreciation also is there, because I think sometimes being on retreat, we kind of look more directly at the human condition than we do sometimes when we're uh, distracted or when we're busy. And um, human condition has a lot of uh, potential for beauty and insight and knowledge and courage and amazing qualities and it also has its hard aspects you know we heard those at the end of our sitting 
people just reporting either their own experiences or those of others. And to be with the challenges of human experience and take it as learning is very noble. Actually, it's the... uh, I think it's why we sometimes talk about the Noble Eightfold Path. It's noble and it's also ennobling. We, we speak that way. So a few words just about uh, the nature of my retreat and, and the nature of retreat in general. Um, maybe I'll start with the latter. Uh, for me, it's just so beautiful to be less busy. <laughs> I, we, I, how many can relate to that? <laughs> the times when we were less busy. I, I found myself one, one day in the retreat, I said, a retreat is like a vacation with attitude. <laughs> you know, it's, um, but it has some of those qualities. That it's just, just the joy of um, um, these days not checking emails <laughs> and having a simplicity. Of life. I mean, some of you probably have that maybe more than I do in your daily lives, but it's really quite uh, wonderful. To ha- I love the simplicity of retreats. Um, really, just doing one thing, which is to be present, and can do that in different ways. And there's a beauty and a power that comes from it. You know, I like that Kierkegaard line that says, "Purity of heart is to will one thing. You know, just to will to be present, really, is what one does." And Again, we uh, intend to do this in daily life, but the retreat has all these supports that really help it to be there. You know, We're a little bit on our own in daily life, maybe with a partner or a family or, of course, a community. We come back like this, but even this, we, this is once a week for a few hours, right? So um, a retreat has tremendous level of support for the learning process, and it's quite beautiful. And I was also thinking that... Um, it's really possible to see the beauty of people and really feel deeply connected. We, you know, there are 90 people in this retreat, some there for two months, some for one month. I thought it was quite wonderful to feel deeply connected th- with people and more or less not have to deal with their personalities. <laughs> you know, um, personalities came at the end of the retreat. And some people deliberately left before the, you know, we do a little bit of a few days of talking at the end of a long retreat and some people deliberately <laughs> left so they wouldn't have to deal with it. Yeah. But uh, it's interesting for me. So, but, but very beautiful and to be with the animals here at Spirit Rock, just to, you know, you know, I would take a walk every morning after breakfast down from the dining hall, almost down to the road, and there'd be the turkeys would be wandering and they'd be sometimes doing their little you know, games, you know, there, um, you know, some things I hadn't seen before of turkey behavior. And, you know, you know the lizards are doing push-ups and, <laughs> you know, and the crows are doing their business. And it's just, uh, you know, deer are around. It's just, uh, it's, it's very, very uh, beautiful and uh, supportive. Uh, and, you know, the, the, uh, one of the strengths of what happens at Spirit Rock when we do retreats, so I think also just being here, there's the strength of the land. And the retreat, we, could, we talk about the retreat container. It actually, I think, is magical. And it's not that this way with a lot of other approaches. You know, in Tibetan, tra- Tibetan tradition, most retreats, more or less, there's instruction. And they don't keep silence in the same way we do. It's more like the model of get your instructions and then go off in the mountains for a year and practice, which unfortunately most Westerners can't do. So anyway, but um, we, have this, uh, we have, have this beautiful container of silence, which is very, very magical. For, for my retreat, I've lately actually been uh, mostly just staying in my room. I stay in my room almost the entire time I don't spend time in the hall, and I didn't go to the talks. I've been doing that for a lot for seven or eight years. And um, it works for me partly because I like to do a little bit longer sittings, like um, two and a half or three hours at a time. 
uh, not not sitting, you know, so I get physically uncomfortable. I, you know, I would might sit because these days I mostly sit in a chair, and I would sit in a chair for an hour, hour and a half, stand up for five minutes, and then sit back down. It's not a big deal, you know, not physically demanding, but I like that sustained focus and concentration. It very much deepens concentration quite quickly when one does that. Um, and so my typical day would be I would start with uh, Qigong for about 30 or 40 minutes at the beginning of the day. We had a, a group. And then I would meditate for 20, 30 minutes, have breakfast, take my walk, uh, come back, uh, clean up, and then do about three hours of practice. Then take a 30 or 40 minute walk in the forest. Then have lunch. <laughs> and then uh, um, clean the men's bathroom. <laughs> that was my job, cleaning, cleaning the bathroom. Then I would take a, like a 20 minute nap. Then I'd do another three hour session. And then I would, uh, 30 or 40 minutes walking, another meal, and then uh, take a walk, evening session, walking at, in the night. A lot of the walking was beautiful at night because it was the getting towards the full moon. It was really stunning evenings to walk out with the, with the dark. And so that was my, that was my day. Right? And uh, I sometimes think of it like staying in my room like that. I, I, I joke sometimes it's like being in a, a Tibetan practitioner in a cave with a temper con- temperature controls for the cave <laughs> and uh, gourmet meals three times a day. <laughs> Yeah. Please, yeah. What? Yeah, I had my own room. Yeah. So I had my own room. Uh, about, uh, I think, three quarters of the rooms are singles at, at Spirit Rock. So that was my, that was my uh, daily life uh, for those four weeks. And I, um, just to say that, uh, again, it's just so the, the simplicity the slowing down. Of course, there are insights that come. There's a sense, it really is, in a sense, my experience is being in touch with what's most important. And visions for one's life come out of it. Again, it's, there can be aspects of this, maybe on a good vacation where we're not doing so much, where the busyness slows down and, as it were, the core of our lives is waiting for us. Could be unfinished business, could be what's really important. It's just more central. So it's a wonderful process for renewal, for renewal and deepening. And of course, retreats are sometimes hard, you know, and uh, it's, not, it's not so easy. I've, you know, I probably have done, I don't know, quite a number of years of, on retreat cumulatively. I don't, I don't count them, but a lot of retreats. And how many of you have done retreats? So most people, not everyone, um, but they they have their aspects which are hard physically, emotionally. Sometimes just I've certainly had retreats where the primary theme, as you know from my talks, sometimes uh, I've had retreats where the primary theme was fear, or another theme was anger, or self-judgment, and so forth. And those are, and when one stays with it uh, over time, those get worked through. You know, it takes time. So retreats can have a purifying aspect in that sense, and they also they also uh, open up. So the practices that I were doing was doing were uh, maybe uh, four or five practices, and they really uh, I did pretty much all the core practices that we do here. I started off with uh, close to eight days of concentration practice, just being with my uh, breath at my upper lip. Um, all day long. You know, when one does concentration practice, one does that, you know, when one's brushing one's teeth, during meals, during walking, you just stay with it. And, it, and, the, and um, concentration uh, can be developed. And it's very, very crucial capacity. You know, it's another theme that I have not talked about so much, but it's something I'm going to be the co-teacher for the concentration retreat here in August. And it's a very important aspect of practice because um, concentration, when it's developed, permits one to cut through the distracted mind uh, more more quickly. You know, and 
I found sometimes on retreats, if I would get up in the middle of the night to go to the bathroom and I would have thoughts, my concentration was generally enough. I could just go to my breath and the thoughts would not be there, which is interesting, right? Uh, Just to uh, have it be at that, you know, a level where um, sometimes, you know, how many people wake up in the middle of the night and there's just a stray thought and there's a second stray thought. And there's a third stray thought. And pretty soon, there's a middle-of-the-night reflection. (laughs) (laughs) And then it it sometimes can last for a while. Anyone relate to that? (laughs) And so it's interesting. So concentration helps one um, cut through. It's it's, um, from the 5th century. Uh, The word for concentration is samadhi. Concentration or samadhi is the profitable unification of mind and heart and body. And it's really a a doorway to being able to uh, see things clearly. It's really the reason we we concentrate, as as in the instructions for the uh, right at the beginning of the morning, where we say we do two things initially. We settle, that's concentration, and then we see. And without the settling, it's hard to see. And so concentration, uh, quite important. And um, it's, it's, uh, it's also something we need to learn that, that um, in our practice of concentration, it's an interesting combination of, of um, kind of effort just to be present, to keep coming back, to really keep, keep with the breath, let's say, and of letting go. Con- you know, deep, deepening of concentration is a combination of profound effort and profound letting go that results in effortless effort. It's quite interesting. Where, where eventually the, one can be present and yet you're not trying. It's something like what one finds, I think, in all disciplines, like a musicians, uh, a master musician will practice. You have to put a, a huge effort, right? but you also have to relax some. And then at the maturity of of a musician's development, the relaxed practice is like the performance. It's a kind of effortless effort. Same thing, I think, in sports. I I know that experience. When you're really trained in sports, there's tremendous effort, but it doesn't feel at times quite like that. And so same thing with the mind. with, with, uh, with meditation. So it's a combination of that. This, I'll just say that this is a beautiful set of lines from about, I think, the 8th or 9th century in India from uh, the Indian tradition, Talopa. He said, in the early practice, the mind is like a stream rushing through a gorge. In the middle... The mind is like the river Ganges flowing along gently. At the end, the mind is like the river joining the ocean, like the reunion of daughters with their mother. That's the movement of practice. So about eight days of just with the breath all the time. And uh, the mind, my mind settled quite a bit. And then I did three or four days of insight practice, our typical mindfulness practice, just being particularly with, the te- with what are called the three characteristics, which are the core teaching. The three characteristics are really the areas that we have insight about when we practice. They are impermanence, suffering and the causes of suffering, and self and not-self. Those are taken to be the three core areas of insight. And the fourth is Nibbana or Nirvana, sort of opening to the sacred. Those are the four core insights that are the direction of our practice, really. And and so I focused on uh, impermanence, suffering, and (coughs) self or not self for three or four days, just noticing when they came. And, And... so I would typically just, and this is, these are practices that we've done at times here, I would start every session just taking 15 or 20 minutes and tracking impermanence, just watching how things change. 
It's kind of sweet. I mean, things are changing all the time, but really focusing on that, something we can do in our practice. Uh, you know, things are changing at the gross level, things are changing at more subtle levels. And so just to notice impermanence. And then with suffering, um, I didn't have a lot of suffering. My main suffering came because I know kind of unexpectedly um, the, the, my right shoulder blade started to hurt, which hadn't done in previous retreats. And for some reason, there was a lot of sensation there. And that was, um, to, to the extent that I didn't like it and was reactive, that was my suffering. And so I would watch it. You know, I would watch, just watch that process, right? Watch how um, there can be um, a reaction in which there's some suffering. I don't want this. I don't like this. Thoughts. Where did this come from? This isn't supposed to be there, right? You know this process, right? Mm-hmm. We know how suffering works. And, just, and a lot of our practice is studying suffering over and over again. And, you know, small suffering or large suffering, the best we can. These were, we might say, smaller suffering. And it really is just a retraining in watching what happens and, of course, a relaxing into, can I just be with the sensation? Or, you know, can I, um, you know, also respond compassionately and, you know, move or see what I can do? You know, so I adjusted my posture. Some combination of being with it and responding skillfully, right? That's what, that's what we do. And then I would also watch when there was an arising of self, um, which would sometimes come when I thought, oh, my meditation's going really well. <laughs> <laughs> right? That's, there's a self arising there. You know, or, you know or, or I would notice sometimes I had thoughts when I would go into the dining hall you know, because I wouldn't have seen people, and they were all in the hall, and I would sometimes, you know, especially in the first days, I'd feel like, you know, I'm kind of coming from, you know, just my own space, and I'd feel, I couldn't, I could sense, I felt a little special, right? I couldn't notice that, and said, that is self, <laughs> appropriating meditation experience for the sake of self-enhancement, <laughs> right? And, uh, and just noticing that, and, and that's very helpful, right? That's very helpful to do. One thing I didn't mention is that I, every two or three days, I would uh, check in and talk with my friend and uh, co-teacher, John Travis. Right? We would talk together. And um, sometimes he would be more like a teacher or mentor, and sometimes it was more like a peer. But we would have that. Uh, it was very, very helpful just to keep checking in. And so, so I'd watch those three, and um, and just study them, and just notice them, and uh, I would then, uh, as I would do that, I would I would start to have that mindfulness and the insight practice move into what we sometimes call choiceless awareness, where I would just be with the flow of experience, sometimes happening very quickly, like da 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 da, da just like hanging out with that, and noticing the, you know, noticing that flow. And we do that with my eyes closed and increasingly with my eyes open, just being with the flow of experience and tracking everything, just noticing, mostly noticing sensation, sensation, just very, sometimes very quickly. And all noticing impermanence, everything happening very quickly. When the mind gets quiet and there's not so many thoughts, experience comes by, it's almost like we are watching a river. And thing, you know, it's almost like there are little things in the river. And we just attend to that river as it comes by. And it's like that. And, and a lot of deepening sense of this is just happening without me controlling it. Right? My experience is just happening. It's impermanent. I can see when I try to fix it or hold it or grasp at it or push away, there's some suffering. And I can also see when self arises. That's really, this is really um, right at the heart of our practice. And I didn't mention that uh, I also, after the concentration practice, I started bringing in metta, because I wanted to have heart practices there. And I did metta almost exclusively in the dining hall. I would go to the meal, 
and I just sit there doing metta the whole time. And I would do it like this. I would, you know, you know, loving kindness practice. So I would do metta uh, for myself and for my benefactor and friend, kind of the the familiar uh, ones that we would work with. And then after that, then I would just start kind of opening my eyes a little bit and looking around the dining hall and finding someone and offering four phrases of metta for that person. I'd find a person, close my eyes, be with metta. My, my phrases go like, may you rest in the awakened heart. May you be safe and free from harm. May, may you um, be healthy and your body support you. May you be held by love. And I would just say those uh, for a person. Keep chewing. <laughs> and then go through the four phrases and then find another person. It's a beautiful practice. You can do that on a bus. You can do that at a restaurant if you care to. And I've liked it so much when I've come home, I've, uh, I've kept doing metta for all my meals. You know, even uh, sometimes when I'm eating by myself, but also sometimes when I'm eating with others to have some metta there. So metta is indelibly connected with eating for me now. <laughs> Which, uh, eating is a form of love, isn't it? And so, do, so metta was in there. So it's a mix of concentration, insight, heart practice. And then the, uh, the work with the insight and the choiceless awareness led to a practice which uh, I've learned from both from the Thai forest tradition and also from Tibetan traditions of Dzogchen and Mahamudra of a kind of vast open awareness that one stays with, which I've sometimes taught about here. Maybe I can teach more about that. But it's kind of a, an open awareness uh, in which there's uh, increasingly uh, a kind of pure awareness without a knower and a known just this open presence uh, that is quite powerful and beautiful. And I would, that was about the last half of my retreat. That was the primary practice. I would do that sitting. I would do that outside. I would often use a beautiful set of lines from a 16th century Tibetan text uh, from a teacher and practitioner named uh, Dagpo Tashi Namgyal. Uh, I would say these lines to myself quite often when I'd be walking, sometimes when I'd be sitting every 20 minutes, 30 minutes. It goes like this. uh, um, Open like the sky, pervasive like the earth, unshakable like a mountain, shining like a flame, lucid like a crystal. And those lines would invoke that state. You may have felt that, right? Those lines invoke something. Open like the sky, pervasive like the earth, unshakable like a mountain, shining like a flame, lucid like a crystal. I love those lines. I've taken to reciting those when I talk on the telephone with my mom. And she really likes them. And I say, let's just do a little bit of meditation. Let your mind just be influenced by these lines as I say them, and then just stay in this open state for 10 or 15 seconds afterwards. And we do that a lot. So, um, um, so that was, that's, a, that's a very beautiful practice. So those really five practices, really. Concentration, heart practice, metta, insight practice, choiceless awareness, and then this kind of open or pure awareness. And that was... Uh, that was a lot of my retreat. Now, last thing I want to come to is the fact that um, having done a lot of retreats these days, a lot of my retreats, despite the shoulder blades, are mostly inspiring and beautiful. My cutting edge is not in retreat, personally. My cutting edge is in daily life. It's interesting. You know, others, the cutting edge might be in retreat or doing a certain amount of practice. So I was deeply energized to have my have something like my retreat awareness be more there in daily life. You know, I had the metaphor of by a few notches, you know, be a little bit more stronger. You know, it's it's not bad. And I do a lot of things. I do, you know, as you know, I do a Sabbath one day a week, and 
one of the privileges of teaching is I get to practice a lot because you know, teaching a lot I sit with people and when I do one-on-one counseling with people we sit the first 10 minutes so there's a lot of times of practice in my daily life but I was energized to want to bring it further and this is I think <clears throat> relevant for all of us and so very very inspired and near the end of the retreat I drew up a list like I wrote a four-page document about how I wanted to develop and I divided it into internal supports and external supports. Uh, Internal meaning more things I would do practice as an external where uh, the help of others and different things. And I'll just just mention some of these and we can have some time to talk together. Um, One of the things that I thought was important was to have a sense of practices, have a sense of sequence of practices that can work with a range of experiences from the most distracted and gross states all the way to the more subtle. And to have a sequence of practices both in sitting meditation and in the flow of daily life so that I could, in a sense, have the intention to cultivate awareness uh, more and more of the time. And so the sequence of practice is a little, we have that a little more clearly in the sitting, that we, we try to settle the mind, then we go to the insight practices, the mindfulness and so forth. And I had my sequence of the f- five levels that I mentioned. That's kind of a sequence for me, so that's a little more straightforward. But also in daily life, for me, the practice that's there when I'm just present, uh, that's the simplest practice, is being aware of my body. And try to have that body awareness. Not easy, but that to have that body awareness be there more present, just around the house, walking, going about things, is a way to have this cultivation of awareness be there more and more. And that would be the beginning. And then I, there are other practices, like when I'm interacting, that I've been doing for a long time, but I wanted to do them a little more, of being present and having uh, awareness with others, bringing speech practices, some of what we do in the uh, one-week speech retreat. They're what I call, I, have, I haven't taught it so much here, but they're practices that I teach sometimes called relational awareness practices, which are about being with others, in which we, you know, I'd love to have a retreat where we do half sitting and half relating to others, right? It's what we need, actually, right? The sitting's great, but we're mostly relating to others, right? So how to do that? You know, maybe I'll, if you have a vote for having that more, as a topic, I, you can, can send, let me know. So it's really, it's quite, quite beautiful. Um, and uh, some of it uh, also had to do just with, uh, you know, this need to simplify one's life. It's a, such a big thing in our culture. And, and I know some of you probably uh, are not working as much, maybe some of you are retired, I think, or maybe not working as much just to be here on a Wednesday morning means you either rearrange your schedule or it might be might have more time. But I know for me and for many of us, just how to simplify one's life. And I know even if one's retired, you can really ask, where did the time go? Right? Right? You know, it's like where did that go? Where did that day go? <laughs> right? It's like that. So the the really the urge to simplify, to have some boundaries for me, to have things like not using a computer after nine o'clock. You know. Definitely not looking at emails before I meditate. <laughs> it's a big thing. You know, in the 21st century handbook for serious practitioners, that will be near the top of the list. <laughs> you know, so to really have some personal discipline guidelines that help you to be more, have your practice be more of a priority. That's things like that that I was reflecting on. And really looking at any tendencies for over-busyness or over-stimulation. These are big. Um, And then there were also external supports. Um, One of them that was an important one was I I really had a strong urge to have my home be more like a temple. Not in a sanctimonious way. (laughs) Not in some quote-unquote religious way. But just to have it, you you know, just to have less clutter at places... And just have it feel more like the, you know, the beautiful sense of being on retreat is that things, of course, people can 
have their room be any way they want. <laughs> but often a sense of simplicity and elegance you know, that, that is very satisfying to one's being, to my being, I think maybe to all of us, and wanting to put a lot of energy to have my home be a little bit more like that. So that's actually, in the little over a week since I've come back, I've actually put about 10 hours into that and had a friend who has a really good aesthetic eye has helped me. <laughs> you know, So very, very crucial, beautifying, you know, home beautification. It's like meditation as well as developing one's home can both be called interior decoration. <laughs> so, um, another external support is working with groups, with peers, with mentors. And so I really had a desire to have a little more of a, like a peer group of people who also want to deepen their daily, daily life. And so this, uh, there are some other things, but th- those are, that's the core of it. You know? So I'm acting. A lot of it is also, I just, I'll just mention one other thing, is just little things that bring one back to awareness during the day. You know, like one thing that I found myself doing during the retreat is one of the reasons that I'm, you know, the last two years I've been sitting in a chair because I have a, a knee problem called patellofemoral syndrome, which sounds worse than it is, but it's basically a misalignment of the uh, knee, kneecap with the uh, femur bone, and it's reversible. Right, but I have to do exercises, and I had been a little bit lax on them. During the retreat, I went back to them, really did them. And um, some of it involves just uh, some pressure on the kneecap and icing. And the reason I'm mentioning this is that during the retreat, I had this wonderful little practice. of after, I, did it, I was supposed to do it three times a day, so after each meal, I, would just, it's, I, was at, I was supposed to do it three or four minutes with pressure and three or four minutes with ice, so it's like eight minutes or so. I would just, after a meal, I would just sit, and I would do the exercise, but with my mind, I'd be doing practice. And I've kept that going when I've been home, so it's like three times a day, coming back just for eight minutes to mindfulness and to practice. And I think we need something like that. And we need these ways to keep coming back for five minutes here, ten minutes here, as well as our sittings. And that helps the practice be alive. So I think each of you probably have ways of, of doing that. Um, so I think I'll end with a quotation from a dialogue that I had, uh, um, quote-unquote, with my father. Um, some of you know in the courtyard, right, you know, out uh, through the doors, there's a bench from my father who died uh, 2005. And some of you met him because he used to come here. And Simon is his name. And um, I have a practice of when I'm on retreat, after the evening meal, going down, sitting on the bench and talking to my father every evening. So I did that like, you know, 25 or 30 times in March. And I would go down and talk with him. And I'm not, you know, making metaphysical claims about what's happening, but something happens. You know, I would talk with him and he, he would usually give me guidance, you know, like, and, I would, and it was guidance that wasn't exactly coming to me by myself, you know. And it would be, you know, we talk about different things, you know, mostly he would give me meditation guidance. <laughs> he wouldn't talk about other things. No. And um, near the end of the retreat, we had this dialogue. Okay, this is Donald. Can I have this retreat level of practice at home? Simon, if you really want it, you can have it. Donald, what do I need to let go of? <laughs> Simon, Maybe your thoroughness and some social life. <laughs> it's an inspiring intention. Keep with a practice for every moment. So I'll, I'll end with that quotation from some level of my mind, perhaps going beyond my mind. <laughs> so. Thank you for your attention. Let's just sit for a moment, then we have a little time for discussion.
Any questions or or reflections about, about anything that I brought up? Please, Adrian. When you do concentration, yeah. did you find yourself going into having insights too, or was it so... Uh, were you so strict about it? I, I, I mean, I get confused with the concentration, the, the, the purpose yeah. of doing that much concentration. I understand that there's settling to be done. And then, yeah. But when that's your your primary goal is yeah. the concentration, I, I don't, it just seems, I, I wonder if it just becomes, is it an end in itself? Or do you allow insight to happen yeah, so a question about concentration practice. Uh, really, uh, both is there, does, does insight occur? And also, uh, really, what's the purpose? Is it an end in itself? Uh, maybe the last question first. Uh, virtually in all Buddhist traditions, the aim of concentration is to uh, make possible deeper insight. Uh, it's not an end in itself. Uh, in some other traditions, concentration sometimes is an end in itself. It's taken to lead to exalted states and can lead to, you know, in the, in the classical traditions, concentra- deep, deep concentration can lead to psychic powers and unusual experiences, um, uh, some of which are valuable. <laughs> some, some of which are just distractions, maybe. But, the, but certainly in the teachings of the Buddha, the aim of concentration is very, very clearly to make possible deeper insight by being able to uh, see the nature of things with less distraction or with no distraction. So it's not an end in itself. Uh, in the actual practice of it, the um, of course insights occur. It's not uh, because the practice is no different than what we do here. It's simply when you notice the mind off the breath, you bring it back. And of course, the mind can be off the breath, having an insight. And so insights will occur. And <clears throat> I don't, I don't sit there saying, "Bad insight, go away." <laughs> So it's more like the insights can occur, and they're just as valuable if they, as if they occur in some other context. On the other hand, one doesn't uh, um, try to develop insight. You know, so you know the practices of contemplating impermanence do yield ins- more insights into impermanence. So it's not an attempt, but there's um, um, but there are plenty of insights. Particularly, you know, I mean, the obvious ones would be what makes it hard to concentrate, what gets in the way of concentration for me, what are my forms of distraction, etc. Those, those are all pretty significant areas of insight. So does that help? Mm-hmm. Yeah, thank you. Um, please, yeah. I'm interested that you didn't go to talks. So yeah. I'm like, I've been up there uh, a few weeks, and of course, I never wanted to miss anything. Yeah. You know, and I thought, well, I can always sit alone another time yeah. when I am alone. So I'm interested if you had any of that like missing thing. And then also, how often were they talking? And did you feel any sense like, I need to go, like maybe that teacher will have their feelings hurt if I'm not there? Or that, you know, that, that whole thing. I did not have a sense of anyone's feelings being potentially hurt. <laughs> uh, you know, I've been doing this for a while, so it, it's not a big deal. Um, and um, and I've, I've, I don't know how many talks I've gone to, but I've been practicing, you know, for 35 years, so it's a lot of talks. And uh, um, I think it's really the original motivation was to have... Uh, another period of time of uh, uninterrupted practice. Uh, and, and I have found that, that it actually helps deepen. I mean, the talks can be wonderful, but they're also, it's like a little bit of a change. And so the, the practice, the, 
sustaining of practice and the deepening, for example, of concentration, I found actually was helped by not going to the talk. So, no, I didn't really worry about anything about that. Uh, and, and, you know, and um, if, you know, teachers aren't looking at who's there when they're 90 people. You know, they're, uh, you know, and when I actually talked to one of the teachers later, she said, oh, I thought I thought, saw you in the hall quite a lot. <laughs> Maybe it was my double. Yeah, please, yeah. Yeah. Simplifying it. And I just wanted to share that since I started sitting a couple of years ago and yeah. coming up to Spirit Rock, I've made it part of my practice to get rid of one thing there. Well, in my house for close to 20 years. Yeah. And I'm starting to see empty spaces and more than that, to be able to experience my home as the kind of comfortable, yeah. temple-like space that I would like to be. Yeah. And just yeah. that one thing a day is really part of my practice Well, wow. so practice of uh, what, uh, giving away or dispensing with one object a day, something a day, but really also very similar emphasis on the home as a, um, a place that can permit uh, or can support potentially beautiful states being there. You know, it's, I mean, it's how many relate, how many have that intention? Probably some, a lot of you have it more developed than I do. <laughs> but it's, um, yeah, it's really, it's like the environment is the outer expression of the mind, right, in a way. And also it influences the mind. It's reciprocal, right? It both expresses and influences our mind states. And so that's been quite important for me. Again, maybe a little different because I'm, I tend to store things. Anyone here a store? You know, some of us. And true confessions come out at the end of the session. Um, but yeah, it's, it's, I, I find it a, a very significant practice. I'm, you know, I think, you know, it's no coincidence. In the Western traditions, uh, the pursuit of beauty has been definitely one of the portals to the sacred. Not quite so emphasized in Buddhist tradition, but you know, if you go back to uh, the Greek traditions, you know, it was uh, like for Plato, the um, access to the sacred was through three doors. One was through goodness, one was through truth, and one was through beauty. It's quite quite something, and so I think that's uh, very very significant and relates maybe to creativity, to your questions about creativity, but it's it's something that, uh, um, yeah, I think very important for all of us and, and for having our, you know, it's almost like, okay, you get your home together and then you, next step is the community, right? <laughs> or maybe maybe both at the same time. Yeah. But thank you. Please, um, please, any, any, please, yeah. Maybe last one, yeah. And what is, do you think the differences are between the people who go a month and two months? Yeah. Well, having done two months, you know, a few times myself, um, uh, um, yeah, I, I have almost never had a retreat where I didn't want to stay longer. Mm-hmm. Many people have that. Ex- how many of you have had that experience? Mm-hmm. Yeah, because it's for a lot of people. I mean, again, retreats can be difficult. And they, I've had my share of difficult retreats. But it also are the moments when we may have the most peace that we've had in our lives and the most clarity about our lives and vocation. And it's very, and it, and it just gets deeper generally. I mean, there, it's not, not for everyone to continue. Don't, we don't want to use retreats as an excuse for not dealing with what has to be done in daily life, right? which some people do, I, I would say. Uh, but um, yeah, I, I would have wanted to continue and I don't know, I think it's, uh, um, I mean, there are some people who've really, who really, uh, there weren't that many two-monthers. There were like, I think 30 people did two months and 60 plus did one month, both February and March. And some of the 30, uh, some of the people 
doing two months were at in uh, I know some of them were in transition and they just had an opening. A lot of it is just scheduling. You know, if you have a job, it's pretty... Some jobs you can take a month off. Almost no jobs can you take two months off, right? If you, Some people who are self-scheduling can take a month off, but you know, if you're a therapist or something, uh, or a nurse or something like that, it's uh, two months is very hard. So a lot of it's just due to that. So some people were in transition, some people were retired, some people were young and not established in things. That uh, that describes quite a number of the people who did the two months. And um, and then some people uh, are really de- just devoting a lot of their lives to a lot of practice. So, um, so maybe, uh, maybe a little more commitment, but not exclusively, because a lot of very deeply committed people did, did the one month. Yeah. yeah. Would you explain what in transition means? <laughs> like between jobs? Uh, the person, one person I'm thinking of was, had just left a job. You know, it's a great thing to do if you're leaving a job. Don't go right to a new one. Do a retreat, or vacation, or whatever. And so, yeah, that. So, uh, yeah, between between jobs, or maybe uh, something opened up in the person's life. Could be just retired, or something like that, or something opened up where there was two months was a possibility that a, a change had just happened in some way. Yeah. Anyway, thank you. Thank you so much for listening. I hope this was useful. I wanted to have a lot of it connect with daily life. So if you just, you know, if if it just inspires you to get rid of one thing a day, if that was the the outcome of our, or to have that, have that question about how can my environment really reflect both my best inner states and the inner states I want to cultivate, something like that. And and then what's going to deepen your daily life practice? That's a theme we often look at. So thank you so much for your uh, kind attention. And um, uh, I will look at your list and uh, of proposed topics, and I will be back with a topic for next week. And I do not yet know what that topic is. <laughs> but it will be, hopefully, um, have good energy. So thank you. And may our practice benefit all beings, including ourselves. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.